0: Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Fallout by the Mayfield Four.
1: My first listen, I was pretty underwhelmed.
0: It reminded me of Chris Cornell trying to sing like D'Angelo.
1: The two guitars in general just, they do a really good job of playing off of each other.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minnichi. And joining me once again, my co-host jason ziak J. yeah i don't really have a witty question to start out with <laughs> this time. come
1: on i love your witty questions
0: um, um let's let,
1: there's one thing i wanted to bring up okay so a couple probably four or five episodes ago Uh-oh. we we predicted our feelings about uh the nfl season uh-huh um how do you feel about that prediction that you made on that show if you can remember?
0: I don't really remember. What that prediction? You
1: basically was. said that you would be disappointed.
0: Well, it's a it's a young season, sir, and I am always prepared for disappointment. Uh, the reason I but, but well, here's the thing. So, at this point, while we're, while we're recording this podcast, the Bills of the National Football League, Buffalo Bills, are 4 and 1 for our out-of-country listeners in Australia and the UK and other parts this means nothing but to our american possibly canadian listeners uh, who enjoy a pigskin the bills being four and one is the equivalent of the bills being four and one i don't know i don't know how else to put it i mean yeah they've gotten off to good starts before but the way that they've done it this year is unlike any team i've ever seen the closest I can compare this to is when they were going to the Super Bowls in the early 90s and in the beginning of the '90 season, which was right after their horrific playoff loss to the Browns the previous year. They started out the season with a stretch of like just crazy wins because that's when they started using the uh, K-gun, the Kelly-gun no huddle offense. So they were putting up 40, 50 points a game and it was just, it was insane. Don Beebe was running all over the field and. Thurman Thomas and James Lofton and Andre Reed catching an insane amount of balls and stuff. And
1: but their defense was much better than...
0: Their defense was much better. Not as much... Their defense sounds bad. But they are poor tackles.
1: They've given up, up a ton of points.
0: And they've given up a ton of points. They are great ball hawks. They have more interceptions in the first five games than they had all last year. So they are forcing turnovers. They're getting pressure on the quarterback to force those turnovers, which is something that they weren't doing last year and in the previous years. Uh, They always had a strong secondary. Um, It's sort of inverted this year. The secondary has been getting chewed up. And the run defense has done a lot better. I mean, they held Darren McFadden to under 70 yards. He's been putting up 100 yards a game. So I don't want to turn this into... Buffalo Bills football chat but let's just say that I'm pleasantly surprised but if they were to collapse I would not be surprised in the least
1: and I'm exactly where I thought I would be
0: yeah and I think the whole thing is they haven't been getting hurt you know they've lost one wide receiver a tackle and the guy who's filled in has done well so they have depth right now which they haven't had in a couple years but I mean this is a team that's primarily being you know uh, run with late-round draft picks and undrafted guys. So
1: it'll be fun to check in in a couple weeks.
0: It'll be fun to check in, or it won't be. To
1: see if your hopes have been crushed or not, and to see if your uh, reviews of your music reviews get more and more bitter.
0: Yeah, if I start referring to things as um, pathetic and uh, embarrassing, <laughs> you'll know that things have turned. To ter- has taken a turn for the worse with the the Bills football. But that's not why you you the listener are here. You're not here to listen to us talk about the NFL and our woes or um potential woes that I see coming. <laughs> Cuz I'm a natural <laughs> pessimist. Oh
1: god. You're, You're here to listen. Most people to would have said it. triumphs, yeah. but you said potential woes.
0: Yeah. Well, a decade of horrific football will do that for you what we're gonna do though is we're gonna turn the dial or shift the dial or do something with the dial we're gonna turn it (laughs) we're gonna we're gonna review an album now we're gonna review a a band which some people i I thought this band was more popular than they were but apparently they weren't and i guess i have retro perspective. Popularity dysfunction or something like that, because there's a lot of bands where I think, oh yeah, people should know this, and then nobody knows who the hell I'm talking about. Well, they were
1: they were popular within our social circle, I think.
0: So we're talking about the Mayfield Four, and uh, we're going to review their debut album, which came out in 1998. It's called Fallout. Uh, it's the only album of theirs that came out during the 90s, so this will be the only Mayfield Four album we're going to review. Now, the significant part. Of Mayfield 4 is that their lead singer, one uh, Miles Kennedy, went on to bigger and better things after this. Well, better is subjective, but um, definitely bigger. We can get into that first. Let's do the history of the band.
1: History of the band.
0: So, Mayfield 4. Formed in 1996 in Spokane, Washington, Uh, they were uh, originally Craig Johnson on rhythm guitar, Marty Meisner on bass guitar, and Zia Uden on drums, with Miles Kennedy on lead vocals and lead guitar. Noticed I pronounced pronounced all of those names correctly because I did research ahead of time on how to
1: pronounce. (laughs) Wow.
0: See what happens when you do research? Shit. Yes.
1: This is awesome. Keep talking.
0: Okay. So they were childhood friends. Grew up in Spokane. Is it Spokane or Spokane? Oh, shit.
1: You just blew it. They, All that research and you don't know if it's Spokane or Spokane.
0: They recorded a demo called 32.5 Hours. And that got them a contract with Epic records they then released a live ep in 1997 called motion and their debut album came out in oh uh, 1998 like i said before and that's called fallout the band spent 15 months on tour opening for creed big wreck stabbing westward Uh, it received positive reviews but did not chart, and Rhythm Guitar's Craig Johnson was let go from the band after that album. They released a follow-up called Second Skin in June of 2001, but the lack of success with that album caused the band to go on hiatus in 2002 and then ultimately break up. Now in 2010, um, a fan-run Myspace page Posted three unreleased songs that were given to them by the band. And there were some rumors of a possible reunion, but Miles Kennedy said that that's not going to happen. So what happened after Mayfield 4? Well, I'll tell you. Miles Kennedy went on to play in a band called Alter Bridge, featuring members, specifically the guitar player, of Creed. Who they had previously toured with. He's also provided lead vocals and collaborated with uh, Slash from the band Guns N' Roses. Uh, was he on the last Slash album, Jay? Or did he? Yeah, he's
1: on the album, and more importantly, he does the—he's the touring vocalist for the band. Gotcha. But uh, the album has many guest vocalists on it.
0: Now they also had a um, touring member. His name was. Alessandro Cortini, he played played rhythm guitar and sang backing vocals on the Second Skin tour. Um, Mm -hmm. He went on later to play uh, keyboards on tour with Nine Inch Nails in 2005, and then contributed in the studio on the Ghosts 1-4 Through box set and the internet-released album The Slip. Mm -hmm. uh, That's the history of Mayfield 4. This is kind of a weird band because they're really towards the end of the alternativeness of the '90s. By the time '98 rolled around, most of the big bands had either broken up or sort of started falling apart. Um, and I'm speaking of, you know, the, the big ones would be, you know, Nirvana's gone, Soundgarden has separated, Alice in Chains is done, Pearl Jam has started going underground by this point, and and you know. They've released basically a couple of unsuccessful or, or less successful albums with Yield and I think Binary or Binaural is around this time. Um, mm. You have the second wave of like Green Day and the Goo Goo Dolls and and um, uh, some of the other bands. Really, the only bands that are doing well are bands like Radiohead. You know '97 is when OK Computer comes out. I guess you could kind of say this is sort of when wilco started to get more popular uh being there came out i believe in 96 and then you got a couple years later you got the follow-up which as a wilco fan i should automatically be able to pop the name out but i'm actually forgetting the name of the third album
1: what the hell was the follow-up it wasn't summer teeth
0: was it Yeah, it was summer teeth thank you was it yeah it was summer teeth and that that got them more exposure the- again my
1: my sense of timing is so screwed up
0: yeah summer that- teeth was the third album that's either like ninety eight or ninety nine, because the fourth album, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, didn't come out till two thousand one. Yeah. So.
1: So this was this is definitely a time when, I think there was everybody was taking a breath, in terms of you know, uh, a hard rock, alt rock, you know, both the industry and fans, and and sort of like looking at where can this go. Right. You know, we sort of run the gamut of grunge influenced things. Uh, you know, music uh, that that had gone as far as it could go at that point. So I was like, well, where where can other influences from? I, I think you saw like your examples of some of the bands that you talked about sort of, you know, prominent at that time are coming from all different kinds of aspects. You know, Wilco's coming from a sort of country sort of thing, Radiohead's sort of doing, I don't know, you know, whatever it is they're doing. Um, but there's, you know, all these different sort of little takes on carrying forward some of the grunge aesthetic but also taking a new element and applying it to it Right. and one of the things that you know thinking back to this album that may not have occurred to me strongly at the time that you know I first bought it and and liked it but definitely makes sense now is if you look at like how this band is described now specifically like the Spotify and the Wikipedia sort of entries on them they're classified as a soul-influenced alt-rock band. When I read that, I was like, that's absurd. Um, but then again, when I listened to the album, I sort of got, oh, okay, that's what they I mean. It, obviously, by um, covering a Marvin Gaye song, <laughs> that's the last track, you know, sort of solidifies that that point of view. Um, I think one album that might be worth mentioning our one artist that might be worth mentioning in this whole as we talk about this whole spectrum of the late nineties would be Jeff Buckley. Absolutely. So yeah. when did when did Grace come out?
0: 1994. So this is it came out two years before this band even formed.
1: So he had a huge influence on a lot of singers and bands. A lot of those bands didn't go on to do a whole hell of a lot. I mean not that I know he has a lot of like really passionate hardcore fan base, but he's not huge. His story's interesting. I know they're gonna make a movie about it, but you know he didn't have a huge like.
0: He had an career. MTV like you know video that got played. Yeah, a I bit. mean
1: he was, he was significant, and he had a one song that was you know pretty well known. Now when
0: when did when do you think influence. that he died? I'm just curious. Ninety <sighs>
1: seven.
0: No. Was it that late?
1: Ninety six.
0: Well, here's. I remember I, w- I was at
1: a Our Lady Peace concert in Toledo.
0: Okay, then it must have been ninety seven. You're you're right about that. Well, see, here's the thing, and this is. His influence was much bigger among musicians to start, than yeah. the general public. I remember hearing an uh, uh, interview with Tom York back in the day, where he talked about the song Fake Plastic Trees. And how he heard Jeff Buckley, and that inspired him in his in the way he sang. Fake plastic. Treatment. Oh wow! And when I, didn't know I that. yeah, and when I listened to this album, I heard two distinct sort of vocal styles on this album. Well, f- actually, I should say three. Jeff Buckley is the overriding vo- influence, and it makes sense that this album came out in '98 because around this same time, you get the first, not the first, you get hours. Um, yep, which was had a big Jeff Buckley, Jeff Buckley and then you have Muse, which had I think Jeff Buckley and and Radiohead. Radiohead,
1: yeah. And there was a band called the uh, Palo Alto. Yes, around, around the same time that sounded a lot like both of those bands too. And uh, oh shoot, Chasing Blue Cars was their big single. Walla, Dishwalla, their second album, and even the first one sort of had a. Jeff Buckley kind of thing, but the second one definitely had a Radiohead Jeff Buckley thing going on, which I think came out around ninety eight, ninety nine. There was a ton of bands that that didn't really. Some of them, like we can mention that we kind of knew, but there was a ton that like we're not even remembering. Yep. That
0: were that were doing the Jeff Buckley vocal thing. I mean, you got to be as talented singer to do that. Well, I think that that's what Jeff Buckley opened up is that there are a lot of guys who could really sing. But being able to really sing in the early '90s didn't matter.
1: Right. It's about <laughs> right. attitude,
0: and it was about delivering, you know, an aesthetic. You know, you if you had listened to the Pixies and what Frank Black was doing, you know, you form Nirvana. You don't form yeah. this band. But if you find Jeff Buckley, and you can actually sing, then this is the band that you're going to form. Right. Um, there's a lot of musically. You can hear it in in just the songwriting. I I sort of heard a lot of um, Chris Cornell, too, especially in the softer stuff. Um, Hmm. The later Chris Cornell, the Down on the Upside Chris Cornell, and even that first solo album, which isn't terrible. I I haven't liked any of his solo stuff since then, but that that first Chris Cornell solo album, um, I heard it on, especially the slow stuff, Um, it almost feels like the slow songs and the up-tempo songs are two different singing styles for miles kennedy the way he sings sucker punch which to me is like the best song on the album yeah um and it wasn't the single which i was surprised yeah that was insane He's using a completely different phrasing style with his, with his lyrics, and the melody is interesting. It's very specific to what he's doing. But when he gets into the slower stuff, like Fallout, like Forfeit, uh, track three, it's very in that Jeff Buckley range. Um, 1231, track six, I wrote down, it reminded me of Chris Cornell trying to sing like D'Angelo yeah because it has like this snare with brushes and he's yep. singing low and soulful and but it sounds like <laughs> chris cornell trying to be sing a soul song
1: yeah yeah
0: um yeah
1: i think um yeah it's shocking that it sucker punch wasn't the single i mean to me that was when i got this album back when it came out that was the song that i loved that was the song that i remembered before i even picked it back up for this um this episode listening to it again uh, now with all that perspective the thing that it does that I wish there were more songs like this on the album is that because the tempo is upbeat it's the fastest song on the album by far
0: Mm
1: -hmm. doesn't allow him to do the sort of indulgent kind of stuff that Buckley got away with sort of the whimpering and the breathing and the oohs and the ahs and like the extra little like you know, noises and uh, uh, that kind of stuff. Like, and elongating you know,
0: words and phrases. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All the affectations that, you know, Buckley did that he was the first one to sort of do it of that era. So the faster songs don't uh, give him the time uh, to do those things. I mean, you know, Buckley's known for the, you know, the vibrato that he does with his voice. Miles Kennedy does that too on a short, you know, on, on a fast song with, um, you know, with a lot of words, you don't have time to do that. And, and it's he's still able to show, you know, he's got a, a good, powerful voice. And he's, he's actually really good at, at least on this album, writing vocal melodies that are really strong and actually they're their own instrument. They're not following what the guitar is doing. They're their own melody. Um, so so he's got the tools to do it. He just sort of falls into these trappings, you know, sort of being so melodramatic at mm-hmm. times. Of nauseating, <laughs> and and the times that he's saved from that is when basically he doesn't have the opportunity to do it. Right now, going into this album again, you know, revisiting it, my first listen I was pretty underwhelmed. Um, the more I listened to it though, I really appreciated it. I started appreciating it again more and more, and understanding why I liked it in the first place the guitar from a guitar standpoint, it's really interesting. Like I really broke down when I listened to the last time, you know, what the two guitars were doing. And it's pretty neat, especially considering I didn't realize that he was the lead guitar player for the band. Yep. Um I never saw him live or anything. I had no idea. I just had the album. There's always like one guitar that either intros the song and 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 for the most part in the verses and, and for a lot of parts of the song it sort of does more like a rhythmic very effect um, focused you know it has a particular guitar effect to it uh, depending on what song it is it's more about rhythm than it is about even like melody or particular you know following the chord patterns mm-hmm. there's like guitar like that almost in every song which oh, I how thought the, was really
0: yeah that's how the really album starts with that like one note guitar and he's sort of like singing monotone over it it's much yeah. more it's much more like it doesn't even necessarily sound like a guitar.
1: Right. To me you are the one season. And you have always been the brightest sun. But these cliches will not be spoken. I choke on my tone tongue. Self-aware, it's a burden. Forever crippled by that tendency. Please evict me from my shutter shell, so I can There's actually, that, and I, it, yeah, the first song, it kicks it off that way, and they do it actually on a lot of the other songs. Uh, it might not be for the whole song, you know, obviously, they play more traditional sort of chord structures and stuff and patterns, but there is a lot of that element, and then the other guitar is sort of playing off of it, and the, the two guitars in general just, they do a really good job of, of playing off of each other and, and doing pretty interesting stuff, like it's not uh you know in contrast if you listen to the second album which is it's horrific it, it's <laughs> just a really shitty album like it's incredible the time it came i remember when it came out i, I like listened to it i never bought it because i was like this doesn't sound good and i went back and listened to it after after you know writing my notes up on this and it's so just their plate and boring and just what you would expect for early 2000s music this is a total contrast i mean this sounds like a real band you know where everybody in the bands sort are of listening to each other and playing back and forth and um just to kind of go you know back to my point with guitars i think there's there's actually from a tone standpoint and just from a dynamic standpoint it's actually really um pretty interesting it's easy to get lost, you know to sort of hear his voice and just that ends up becoming your impression of the entire band and either you love it or you know i'm sure there's a lot of people that just get totally drawn in by that. There's going to be a lot of people that are sort of not into the really super melodramatic Jeff Buckley style thing, if it's not Jeff Buckley. Um, but if you kind of get past that and listen to not only the melodies singing, but how it plays off of the two guitar parts, um, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting. I think it holds up really well from that standpoint.
0: Speaking of the guitar riffs, just as a aside, for track four, Always, did that guitar riff remind you of Let the Good Times Roll by The Cars?
1: Yeah, yeah, but at least the beginning. Yeah, I mean, it starts. It starts off. It sounds a lot like it. I, I just which they did a similar thing. Like one of the guitars, you know, was typically more of a. Uh, it was more about the rhythm. Usually, the Rico Kasek part was more about the rhythm that he played, and as opposed to the core pattern or even the melody that he was playing. And then you know the other. You know, the other eastern part was way more melodic you know really carried the melody of the song um so in some ways they're you know not that the two bands are similar at all but the way they're approaching the guitar parts I thought was pretty interesting I think they're actually in the same sort of uh, philosophy it's resonating with an old familiar song making you oh. along to the other. friction and alone you were at ease but now and then there's something that makes you want to be back in the arms but you can't take it always always seems to find you what you want you don't need cause you locked you down so why you better off
0: one well you you brought this up earlier the last track on the album is a cover of Marvin Gaye's Inner City Blues. <laughs> um, I re- now I sort of I'll let's re- sit with you. Well, here's the thing. I sort of remembered this album when it came out. I wasn't terribly impressed. I do remember liking Sucker Punch as a single. Not as a single, but as a song. But not yeah. really like connecting with the rest of the album. And I never really understood that last song now I guess it kind of makes more sense in the sense, in the in the sense that I've picked up a little bit more on the fact, like you said, that they're classified as like soul almost, mm-hmm. with his vocal delivery. But to me, that's an odd song to choose. That's a political song. That's a social issue song. And this is not a band that's worrying about social issues. You know, they're they're writing pretty. You know, they're not tackling social issues. Or, or politics in any of parts of these songs. Oh no! Seems like it's just a, a showcase for basically him to sing falsetto, and then and yeah, and then do some you know vocal gymnastics. And
1: yeah, I mean it's a, it's unfortunate that that song's on the album. I mean, it's not that it's a bad a bad performance of the song in any in any means. I mean, in terms of like translating Marvin Gaye into an alt rock style, you know technically. They do an admirable jo- admirable job of doing that, but you're right. I mean, just uh, yeah. When I saw the, I had totally forgot it was even on there. And when I when I pulled the album up to start reviewing it, you know, it sort of threw me, sent me back for a second. I had to even think like, was this on the original release, or was this like a B-side that they threw in now, or apparently it must have been on there. But yeah, I, it was. You know, barely even remember. I mean, I sort of remember it, but it didn't really it definitely doesn't sit right with me now. And even then it was sort of like, eh, I think I'll skip this. It just <laughs> try, to pre- it's, try to pretend this it, doesn't exist.
0: It seems like a bad choice or an attempt at showing that you're like a little bit deeper. Yeah. Um, Which
1: they didn't need to do because I think, um, I think lyrically this album's pretty good. Uh, you know, it doesn't, it's cliched in terms of, yeah, he writes a lot about relationships and stuff, but I think that, you know, the language he uses, the words he uses, the way he describes it, the, you know, the, the, the rhyming that he does, you know, from that standpoint, it's actually, it's actually not bad. I mean, it's pretty good. And really, if you want a contrast, go listen to the second album where it's, I mean, it's just mailed in, you know, typical 2001, 2002 radio alt rock. I mean, he's just, anybody could have wrote those lyrics they're horrible but on this you know they're not i mean i think they're actually pretty unique and um pretty well done and that that song being on there just really i don't know yeah it just is just bad taste in your mouth i think when you get to the end of the album which otherwise is it you know is, is i think pretty solid i you know i'm i will be critical that listening to it now it's a lot of the same thing yeah. in terms of, it's the same tempos, mm-hmm. same intros, it's the same song structure, you know. Mm. Sucker Punch stands out so much. And uh, the other song that you mentioned, uh, 1231, just because there's, you know, they're at least a contrast. Like One's really quiet and Sucker Punch is really fast and loud. And everything else is like dead in the middle. If I had a drink I drink it. I had a drug. I take it. Do.
0: I kind of kept thinking about when I was listening to this was Our Lady Peace. Um, mm-hmm. There were elements of each band that I heard in terms of uh, specifically the second Our Lady Peace album, which has like Superman's mm-hmm. dead on it and stuff um, where he, you know, that first Our Lady Peace album, it's kind of got a little bit of um, more air to breathe on it whereas mm-hmm. on that second one they sort of rein in the music a little bit and it's pretty much vocal over everything yeah there's not as much free reign for the music to sort of grow um that's what this kind of reminded me of there's not a lot of parts where he's not singing I mean there's some guitar no. solos here and there but other than that they don't really let the music sort of get to the forefront you have to like you have to purposely listen to something other than his vocal in order to hear it because his vocal is yeah. so up front you were saying
1: yeah that's what i was saying about the guitars yeah i had to really specifically listen because i kind of wanted to break down like what was going on and, and you're right you have to focus you have to purposely focus past his vocal I mean, part of that's just because the vocal is so strong which isn't a bad thing i mean he's a great singer like i said i think his melodies are really strong so you know bands would kill for that that's awesome yeah, but you're right. You need to balance that with having moments where the music can kind of come forward and, and grab you from that aspect because that that just grabs a different part of your ear, grabs a different part of your emotions. Another thing that uh, that occurred to me in terms of that was that uh, you know from a music standpoint, nothing ever really plays off as vocal. You know, it's not like they ever write a guitar part that you know mimics the melody or Reprises it or compliments it, or there's never even a backup vocal. Like, I, you know, I don't think he ever even. There's never a harmony. There's never, you know, another backup vocal on the entire album.
0: No. In some ways,
1: it's kind of cool because it's one vocal, like really dry—not really dry, but fairly dry. You can hear him breathing and the whole like uh, lip smacking thing, which is is neat in terms of performance. I mean, it's a real performance on this album. There's no Pro Tools on here. There's no bullshit editing. I mean, this is really what his voice sounds like, which is impressive, except that there's not that other element where it ties it back to the music, either using, you know, either a performance or the way things are structured. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. I, yeah, his, his voice is definitely on top of everything rather than being a part of everything. And it's almost as if they wrote all the music and then he was like, all right, now I'll do all the vocals.
1: Yeah, kind (laughs) of. Kind of, yeah.
0: So, which I'm sure that's not true. I mean, they were working, this is their first album. I'm sure they were working on these songs for years, like most bands when they are making their first album. So, um...
1: Yeah, but a lot of these songs, you can't imagine him, like, uh, you know, writing it on an acoustic and just, you know, writing it himself on an acoustic guitar and singing along you know what i mean like if there's too much like two distinct guitar parts and neither one is really like just playing the chords Now maybe that's sort of after the fact of like as the band plays the song they sort of deconstruct the chord structure and right. song structure and it becomes less apparent you know that there's one guitar that's really carrying everything but it definitely sounds like uh either you know they, they came up with this stuff as a band and he sort of sang over it or, or like you said like they actually started recording it and he sang over it i'm not sure but
0: so this album came out mid 1998. uh we've already kind of touched on i think we've touched on why it wasn't successful um, i mean it didn't chart uh it's sort of a an album that people have discovered in reverse because of Alter Bridge and him being in that band um, you know this wasn't they weren't gonna get a played on MTV at this point now you're battling boy bands and new metal bands are basically dominating MTV but, by the late 90s
1: but like if uh, Jeff Buckley's played on MTV in
0: 1994 you four years that's four years a lot changed yeah. in four years in by 98 you're battling corn and limp Biscuit and Creed and the Spice Girls and the Backstreet Boys. And which,
1: which is funny because their second album, I mean, is essentially like them trying to be Creed, which didn't work either.
0: Well, he was auditioning to, to, <laughs> to be Mark Tremonti's lead singer.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's bad. I don't know, though. I like, God, I don't It's just crazy. Like, I can't really. I guess we've had a couple albums now there were where we've felt like they had all the right elements but just the timing was wrong maybe, maybe that's the case I guess but
0: thing is everything because I think if usually this, if this comes out around the time the Benz comes out in 1995 this this could have been a huge album yeah I mean you know they've got their just they've got their fake plastic trees they've got their street spirit you know those all, all those songs have all these songs have elements of those songs I, I don't know that they have you know, I, the Benz is probably the right album to pick for Radiohead because it was still commercial, was singles-oriented. Um, it didn't have, you know, the, the weirdness that was prevalent on OK Computer. And yet, when you listen to the Benz you definitely hear a band that's playing as a band and putting together not just a showcase for the vocalist, but like writing really interesting songs and melodies on all the instruments. And, um, so maybe this, maybe this wouldn't have been as big a hit in 94, 95, 96 in that time frame, but definitely could have been as big as say the first, and I'm saying as big as the first Our Lady Peace album, but I don't even know that that was that big. I just know that I saw them on tour a couple times. So,
1: yeah, I mean that, that, uh, that album did, did pretty well. I mean, I think they had their biggest success with the second one and, and later, but it did well enough for them to get some momentum, and um, I think "Navid" was a fairly, you know, big radio song. So yeah, I, I think they maybe were probably just a little too late. It's really weird. It, we keep coming across, the, like I said, a lot of these bands that the timing was bad, and that they got squashed by this weird, oh, new metal thing that started happening in the late '90s that just, oh, it just kind of crushed any. I guess all, a lot of the bands that we were in, that we ended up being influenced by, got crushed because it just didn't fit. But in the same way that grunge kind of took over when it first came out, you know, yeah. radio and MTV, new metal did the same thing, and there was just there was just no room for anybody else. And it was just such a strong statement that either you liked it and you fit in, and it, or you didn't, and if you didn't, well, we don't have any room for you.
0: It was easier oh, to program. Was... I mean, it was if you're if you're at a radio station, or you're at a, you know, television network. It's a lot easier to be able to program the new metal, which all sounds the same. It's aggressive. It's simple. Than trying to figure out the new pavement and Marcy Playground and uh, Everclear and where do these ba- you know, is this rock or is this alternative or, you know, how does cake fit into this and you know that was really a confusing time because you had so much stuff getting thrown out there that was being called alternative you know where do the yeah. squirrel nut zippers fit in all this you know it's like yeah. if you're oh, a, if you're a radio programmer you're like just give me the new metal yeah it's always easy there were program.
1: some stations that supported that and you know a lot of the bands you're listening to i know in columbus you 101 supported a lot of those bands and still supports them to this day unfortunately yeah but uh you know there was there was some space for them, but yeah, I guess that uh, even within that, th- there's t- there's also not. I mean, other than Sucker Punch, which is probably the hookiest song on here, from a pop standpoint. You know, this album could be a lot stronger. Yeah, um,
0: Always would probably be the second poppiest song.
1: You no know, one one thing on here that um, a couple I noted on a couple songs that I thought was interesting was that. Um, I was trying to remember. There, there are like at least two power power ballads on this album. Like, they're straight up power ballads. There's right. no other way to describe them. They're they're wrapped in a little bit of, you know, alternative, quote unquote dressing. But uh, they're power ballads. And I was trying to think like when the power ballad kind of creeped back into the musical landscape. And it kind of did it in a stealth way. And they were one of the bands that were sort of like dabbling in it and probably trying to pretend like it wasn't, but it really was. Um, But I I thought of uh, Candlebox and like Cover Me and whatever the other. There was another slow song off that first Candlebox album. And it sort of just reminded me of like, oh, yeah, there were like they sort of introduced when they came out, like, you know, hey we're just like Pearl Jam and all these Seattle bands but oh you know we just happened to write a song that a couple songs that sound like Skid Row power ballads
0: well and then honestly the power ballad never bands, died to tell you the truth. yeah
1: there was a bunch of bands like after that that basically did the same thing but they sort of never you know they sort of would never acknowledge that they were actually power ballads
0: Pearl Jam's but Black if it had come out two years earlier that'd be a power ballad yeah Uh, you know, power ballads existed throughout, you know, if you wanted to get, you know, obviously this is a particular subject of interest for me since I'm writing a book on power ballads but you know, if you want to stick to the sort of what I've defined as a power ballad it had to be a band that actually existed in the 80s and since Pearl Jam didn't exist in the 80s, it can't be a quote-unquote power ballad in the traditional sense but Black has all the elements of a power ballad. Yeah, there were there were quite a few power ballads. Now, in terms of when they became mainstream again, you got to look at like Creed with their song "With Arms Wide Open." I mean, that's a gigantic Well,
1: yeah, album. I think like um, like "Forfeit" on this album is like a precursor. Per- and don't walk sure. away. Yeah, I mean, those are those are right there. They don't have the big. I mean, "Arms Wide Open" has that super thick chunky you know big open chord thing going on Mm -hmm. that makes it just straight up power ballad but they were definitely headed in that direction and sort of dabbling in the same like hey i wonder if we could you know make this work and honestly like if they were going to have a hit song unfortunately it probably would have been one of those songs it wouldn't have been sucker punch which you and i love and think is the best song on the album it would have been one of the ballads. And it would have been through you know not through alt rock radio, it would have been through top forty radio.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: The same way they create broke through. That was the way that was the way to, to sort of navigate your through the whole new metal thing.
0: I mean it's and, it's the same thing with Muse. Muse wasn't popular because of you know, Origin of Symmetry, which we think is an awesome album. They got popular because stephanie meyer put him on the twilight soundtrack and they wrote a ballad to go with it i mean that's that's where they got popular so ballads get hit both the male and female demographic and that's what you need to have a big hit just because a a bunch of guys who are into rock bands you know like some of the up-tempo stuff is not going to make you a big hit
1: no you got to cross over to the girls and right they like the ballad
0: yep And we have just completely alienated our female listeners by saying (laughs) they like only like sappy ballads. So, do we have any
1: female listeners? Um, If you're a woman and you listen to this podcast, please reach out to us. We would love to know that we have at least one female listener.
0: Yes, that'd be awesome. It's not.
1: It's not related to us.
0: (laughs) That's the caveat. You can't be related to us.
1: You can't be married to us.
0: That too. Uh, or gave birth to us.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Mom, don't. Send it. All right, so. All right, I think we've spent enough time on Mayfield Four. Covered all the bases. So do
1: you give? Did you like this? Do you give it an up?
0: No, I don't. I give it. I say, there's probably three or four good songs. Sucker Punch, Always, like you mentioned, 1231 is a really, like, completely, opposite version of sucker punch it's completely it's quiet it's really delicate sounding it's good i like i like some of the elements of some of the other songs um i like shutter shell has some interesting stuff going on but overall i didn't really find it that compelling Mm -hmm. so which is kind of how i felt when i first listened to it And I, i liked going back to it um just to revisit my original opinion but overall, I wouldn't say that this is something I'm going to be listening to. Now, if you're way into, like, what Miles Kennedy's doing with Alter Bridge, or you liked um, The Benz, um, Grace, Soundgarden, Our Lady Peace, Hours, Muse, this might be something that you're totally into.
1: Well, it's going to be funny, uh, I think, for a lot of people that know him from uh, Alter Bridge, and, you know, I guess maybe even the second album, or even the stuff he does with Slash. This is pretty different, you know, I I don't know if they'll like it. I mean, I guess if they really like his voice, I'll say this. If you really like his voice, this is probably the best version of his voice that you're going to hear from any of those bands in terms of you really hear his voice. There's no, you know, I sampled, I've heard some Alter Bridge stuff. I say I have the Slash album. I listened to the second album, second Mayfield 4 album, you know, there's no vocal doubling there's hardly any, you know, there's minimal amount of reverb. Like I said before, this is really his true voice and probably what, you know, him at his artistic best. Yeah. So if you're a fan of him, you know, I would say go check this album out, get it on Spotify or something, or buy it on iTunes. I'm sure it's easy to get. Um, and, and check it out because I think it's probably him in the best light that he's ever been. Uh, at least from a recording standpoint
0: and I've heard all those I haven't heard the second album but I I have heard the Alter Bridge and the Slash stuff and I would agree with your assessment all right that's it we're done with Mayfield 4 we don't ever have to go back to this band there's no second album for us to review so we're done Mayfield 4 is in the books
1: (laughs) (laughs) you don't get to say that very often
0: no not very often usually it's like we've got three more albums to go of this band on that note we will be back next week with another episode of dig me out want to leave feedback join the conversation about this episode visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our facebook page and twitter feed